Well, we're going to start off by doing something a little bit different here. This is one of those Sundays where we're going to start with a little bit of uh, interaction with your neighbor. So hopefully you're sitting next to someone who's attractive and smells nice, you know. And uh, we're going to give you just a couple moments to uh, have a, a discussion. Not yet. What are you talking about? You don't, you're like, you don't smell so good. That's already a fail. Here's the question. I want you to ask your neighbor, what are some of your favorite words and why? What are some of your favorite words and why? So go. Okay, I'm start, starting to hear the taper here, so I think you've probably got that done now. Now you've got your talking out of your system. It's my turn. Right. Some of my favorite words uh, actually begin with the letters R and E. Renovate, restore, rebuild, renew, rejuvenate. I didn't even have it written down. Someone gave me that one. That's a good one. Redeem, resurrect. I love those words that, that speak of bringing something back to life, back to health, back to wholeness. That whole word idea for me is uh, rich and, and really wonderful. And today we look at one of those words, at least conceptually. And the word that we, we are going to see at work today through our text is the word reverse, reverse. Christ's death reversed the consequences of Adam's sin. Christ's death reversed the consequences of Adam's sin. So we're still talking about justification by faith. Sort of contextually, that's where we are. Last week, we looked at sort of the personal implications of that. We looked at seven benefits of justification by faith, but it really focused on sort of our personal experience with it. And today, in this second part here of the, really the same section, Paul steps back and he discusses the same concept, but more or less from a cosmic perspective, the impact of Christ's sacrifice for humanity or for the many. Christ's death reversed the consequences of Adam's sin. So let's pick up Romans 5, uh, chapter 12. We'll read all the way through to the end and then work our way through. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, and then Paul stops mid-sentence, as he does, as he's prone to do, and we then take a left turn into this huge tangent, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not even sure exactly, precisely, where he returns to his first phrase, or if he does exactly. So he goes, I'll see us, Lewis, on us here, okay? <laughs> Verse 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged 
against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, or as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of that gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, there's a little bit of theology in this passage, just a bit. So we're going to start with this here. Our one representative, Adam, brought sin and death for all. In other words, we are all born in guilt. When Adam sinned, he sinned on our behalf. He sinned as our representative, the representative of mankind. In the same way that when a ruler declares war on another country, the whole country is at war with the other country. The one speaks for the whole. The one acts for the whole. And this, this sort of philosophy or theological subject is also called uh, federal headship. When Adam sinned, he sinned for us. We are guilty because we were in Adam when he sinned, so to speak. So that means that all descendants of Adam inherit the guilt of Adam's sin. In other words, we were not born with the possibility to not be sinners. We were sinners from birth. And David says this as much in Psalm 51 when he says, Surely I was guilty from birth. He puts it all the way back to conception, which is an interesting point for those of you who ought to and, and, and should see that life begins at conception. There's a great argument from that point right there from David. But sinners, not only from birth, but really from conception because we were in Adam when he sinned. We are therefore natural born sinners. You might think of the way uh, an infant is, is born with uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. Was it their act? No. Did they bear the burden of it? Yes. And in a, in a way, you know, we have, we have uh, the same syndrome. We carry the guilt of our forebearers. In addition to that, we are also born with a sin nature. And I think you probably know this. Uh, you recognize you don't have to teach your children how to sin, right? They don't need a course on that. They don't need a gold foil star chart on how to sin, we don't have to incentivize it or explain it. 
We have to teach them how to obey. They, they come with disobedience, selfishness, pride, deceit, and sin. That's standard equipment on a child, right? That comes with. Uh, if you don't believe me, just go to Walmart and watch the tantrums happen, right? Just walk through the aisles and watch it go. Um, I remember a time, uh, this was many years ago, I think Aiden, our firstborn, was about five years old. And, um, you know, I'll just go ahead and say this. Uh, he's the cutest kid I ever saw in my life. Sorry, Gus. Sorry, Ellie, wherever you are. <laughs> Aiden, Aiden just had this sort of angelic little face. Anyways, and he had curly hair, which, let's not go there. That's, that's a sore subject. Right? We were at the grocery store. We were at Fred Meyer, because I can't go to Walmart. If you ever see me in Walmart, pray for me, because there's a problem. I, I don't go there. I don't want to go there. We're at Fred Meyer, and we go past one of those ball cages, you know, with the big plastic or rubber ball in it for kids. They weigh nothing, and they want like seven bucks for them, and you're like, uh. And Aiden, of course, oh, got to have one. Can I have one? And we were like, no, you don't need that. You don't need that. We finished our shopping. We went through the line, and we're exiting the building, and I look in the cart, and here's this ball. (laughs) And I'm looking at this, and I asked Amy, I was like, did you put this in here? And she says, no, did you buy it? And I was like, we bought it. And we both look at Aiden and, <laughs> and that little angelic small face of his with the curly hair, with the sincerity as far as the eye can see, he looks up at us and says, I put it in there. Did I steal? <laughs> Do you know, you're like, I'm mad and sad. And that's funny all at the same time. Like, and I thought, yeah, you stole, you turkey. And he didn't even steal from Fred's. You stole from me because I bought it, right? Our kids come to us sinners from birth, and we were ourselves. And I think sometimes it's amazing to think that such a little thing can have such a far-reaching consequence. Adam's one little sin did so much damage, right? Uh, In fact, Ricky Gervais, a very crass comedian, outspoken atheist, makes fun of God for this. Uh, He says, here we have Adam and Eve having a little apple snack. And God, these are his words, throws a hissy fit. And I think, ooh, Ricky, don't stand so close to me. I don't want to get singed here. But Gervais fails at two points. He fails to understand, first of all, the holiness of God. That is his absolute parity, his sinlessness, but more than that, that our God is altogether other. He is not a slightly modified, improved human. Our God is spirit. Our God is other. Our God is holy. Gervais has no sense of this. He also fails to understand a second aspect, and that is the corrosive power of sin. So easy to think, because sin's no big deal. It's not a big thing. It's no big deal. Gervais fails to see how corrosive sin is and that sin begets sin. Sin gives birth to sin. Sin reproduces. Um, A couple of weeks ago, actually several weeks ago now, I was sitting in the family room with my legs crossed, my socks off, you know, just end of the day, watching a ball game as I'm prone to do, uh, much to Amy's chagrin. And, uh, And all of a sudden, I felt like this tingle sort of on my foot, like it got wet all of a sudden. And I thought, well, that's weird. And then 
my first instinct was, well, I've got my legs crossed. Maybe it's starting to fall asleep a little, you know what I mean? A little zap, whatever that is. And I, I'm still sitting there and then it comes up, it happens again. And it really felt like a drop of water hit my foot. And I'm, now I'm thinking, am I having a stroke or, you know, what, what is this? And I, I look closely and I reach down and touch it. And sure enough, my foot's wet. Somehow water's dropping on my foot in my family room. And I'm kind of looking around like, is you know, someone messing with me? And I look up and I realize directly above me is the bathroom and someone's in the shower. Oh, no, you know. So I, I get working on And my assumption is that, well, it's one of those things, you know, the shroud around the handle or around the faucet or whatever, backsplash is getting water behind and it's running down. So I cocked it and, and then it stopped. And for a couple of days, I was like, yeah, got it. I got it. I'm not the great fixer in the world. So when I get one, I was like, yeah. And then a couple of days later, it's back. Oh. So I called a friend of ours to do the repair, and they did a great job and were really, really helpful in this. And, and I was kind of curious, what happened? You know, how did this happen? Here's what happened. Somewhere along the way, I'm, t- I'm sorry I'm talking about my shower drain, but, you know, I am. <laughs> it got clogged. And I was in there fussing with it and prying away as you do. And, you know, there's that little cross in the bottom that holds the, you know, the screen over the drain. And there's that one screw that goes down and Holds it in, right? Just tell me, nod like you know what I'm talking about, even if you don't, I need it. And somewhere along the way, um, I had actually broken that little cross piece at the bottom, so the, the screw that threads in there, it wouldn't hold it anymore. And I don't know what happened, but eventually that screw just went away and down the drain, and so that little screen just sat there. And you know what? That little screen with that screw, and it actually holds some of the plumbing tight to the bottom, so you can just imagine. So over time, this is just years, for years, just sliding down until water then is pouring out of the drain. And we had to go back in and open up the ceiling and repair all of that. So uh, you think, uh, just a little thing, right? Just, just this little screw right here. This little thing. Actually, this isn't the actual one. Um, that would be gross, for starters. And it's gone. I don't know where it is. But that little screw cost me $2,000 to repair that sucker. And that is the nature of sin. One little thing, one act of disobedience plunged the world into sin. And along with it came death. So Paul's unpacking this and he it kind of anticipates this question from his hypothetical debater. You know, we, we've kind of been through this before through this series. He anticipates questions and then, and then addresses them. And so the question he sort of anticipates here is, well, what about the law? Or in other words, what about those who don't have the law? When did the law come? With Moses. What did Adam and Eve disobey? A specific command in the garden. What about this gap in between? That's sort of the question uh, what, that comes up here. What about this time in between Adam and Moses? And at first blush, it looks like Paul is saying uh, that somehow this was a season without sin. Does that sound right to you? Does this sound like Paul? Does this sound like anything he's been saying up to this point? This, this is one of those places where we remember, never read a single verse. We, we want it in context. If we get a single verse, we can make it say what we want it to say. That would be overreading the passage or reading it too narrowly or too literally 
to feel that as though there was no sin during that time. In fact, Paul has already said in chapters two, uh, in chapter two, that people sin inadvertently. They have uh, on their conscience. The law is on their conscience, and they violate it all the time. So sin happens all the time. What he is saying here is that though they may not be sinners in the same way or in the same overt fashion, having disobeyed a specific command, they are nevertheless sinners having inherited Adam's sin, the guilt of his sin, and having a sin nature, they are committing sins, even though they're not committing sins that have been perfectly defined yet, if that makes sense. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned, there we go, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But since sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. So then we move on here, and what we kind of learn or what we see is that this shows how the law, when it arrives in Moses, with Moses, that it's sort of a good news, bad news thing, Right? Um, on the one hand, it's, it's good news because now the people of God know what God wants of them. But it's bad because they also precisely know where they're failing, right? Uh, we bought our home a number of years ago. And when we purchased the property, we knew that there was an, an encroachment where our basketball court and the pole was about two or three feet over the line onto the next parcel, uh, and so when, I, uh, when the property above us sold, we had to sign a statement that said, if, if, uh, since there's that encroachment, if the new owner wants to, then we would remove that. That's fine. We were willing to do so. Also, in the meantime, I had put up, and that, that had been there for about 30 years. Uh, also, in the meantime, since I bought the property, we put up a woodshed. And I had to measure carefully where that line was. And so I, the reference point I had was the house. And so I measured the distance out, put my first corner. Second corner was a little harder to figure, so I did my best. But when the new owner came in next door and they bought the property, they hired, um, what do you call it? The person who measured survey. Man, you guys are on it. All right. You had, it's like you had an extra hour of sleep, right? <laughs> so surveyor came and delineated the line. Here it is. And... Um, Okay, and it turns out that my woodshed is also 10 inches over the line on one corner and filled with about four cords of wood. I know that precisely for a reason. So I get a, I get a phone call one day from the neighbor because my son is outside playing basketball and she says, I don't want your son on my property. And I was kind of like, okay, that's a little harsh. I kind of thought maybe we could talk about this a little. And I'll just say things deteriorated very quickly from there. And the next day, I came outside to find that about 20 metal posts had been driven in the ground all along the property line. And that no trespassing signs had been hung along the property line facing our property. So that right out my front door, right in the driveway, to all the way all up and down it. And it was very aggravating, um, very frustrating so we're trying to, you know, deal with that. We pulled up the whole basketball court and the hoop, moved it, moved a fire pit, moved to garden beds, just moved all kinds of things so we could use our property how we wanted to without any encroachments. Moved the firewood out in the, the shed forward. And um, one morning, I took the dog out for his morning constitutional and um, 
And our dog, who normally, Huckleberry, who normally has really good recall, ran across the line into the neighbor's yard. It's 5.30, 6 a.m., fresh snow on the ground. It's quiet. It's still moral dilemma. What do you do? You scream at the top of your lungs, Huckleberry! Wake the neighborhood. Do I go across the line and trespass to retrieve my dog? Or do I wait until he's finished and slink away as though nothing had happened? <laughs> I opted for number three. <laughs> it seemed like the gracious thing to do. And I'm just hoping it's not noticed or not, she's not aware of it. By noon, by noon, I had gotten contacted about how there's fresh snow on the ground and tracks and evidence and whatnot, a little deposit. And all that to say... It's just been tense since. And now there's an eight-foot fence and still no trespassing signs. And I, in hindsight, wish I had determined the property line long ago and removed all the encroachments or even bought back some of the line, right? Some of the property. I wish I had done that. Instead, we have these tensions and no trespassing signs. And in a sense, that's what the law is and does. The trespass has always been there. The law defines where it's always been. The trespass shows, it just clarifies, it magnifies any trespass that now occurs because it is somehow now more egregious. It's not just a thing, it's a direct act of disobedience against what is known. That is what the law has done to us and for us. But here is the difference between God and my neighbor. <laughs> Instead of just clarifying the line not to cross and posting no trespassing signs, God does not leave us in this place of hostility. But instead, our God, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, redeems. He redeems. God removes the trespass. How? by purchasing it back himself in Christ, and he redeems. This brings us to our second point, and in case you're terrified because you're like, point two, Eric, I see how many points you have. Uh, we're front-loaded this morning, as we typically are. One representative, Jesus, brought justification and righteousness for many. Verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned, through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, again, Paul's language is a little <laughs> distracting for me here. Paul is the, probably one of the toughest New Testament authors for me personally. He says two things that I feel we have to wrestle down a little bit. First of all, in verse 15, he says, The gift is not like the trespass. And then he follows it up in verse 16, nor can the gift be compared. And I kind of look at that and go, 
Isn't that what we're doing? It feels like we're comparing. It feels a little like that. And I, I think the point that he's saying is here this, is they're comparable, but they're not equal. We may put them side by side, but we're going to find one completely different than the other. And I think that's this point. So what we actually find here is that there's both similarity and dissimilarity. And I'm just going to work through this very quickly. The similarity is in that there's one who has done something for the many, right? There is this representative act, Adam bringing sin, Jesus bringing righteousness. But the dissimilarity is on two points. First of all, the night and day difference of what was achieved. One brought ruin to the human race. The other brings reconciliation to the human race. There is a completely distinct kind of quality. And the one, the fruit of one man's work was death. The fruit of the other man's work is life. Completely different, again, in quality. And the other dissimilarity here has to do with the power by which something was done. Where death that once reigned, now and much more, it is righteousness that reigns. In other words, Paul doesn't want us to think that between sin and righteousness and death and life, that there are somehow these competing powers of equal strength. And Christians fall prey to this thinking all the time. We have the evil one, we have Satan, and we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are in a tug of war that is not at all equal. It's not equal powers in opposition. Our God is strong, he is mighty, and he overpowers. Twice Paul uses the phrase, how much more, to describe not only the superior work, but the superior power at work. We are meant to see that Christ's work overpowers the previous reign. Jesus is the true and better Adam. And his representative representation for us is much, much better. So previously, sin and death reigned, but Jesus, the true and better Adam, just as, and think about this, think of light and darkness. In the physical world, light overpowers darkness. When you light a candle in a dark room or turn on your flashlight or your headlights, it dispels darkness. Darkness doesn't win in that battle. Light does. And in the same way, the gift of God in Christ is more than just replacement. It's displacement. It overpowers. It reverses the effects of the former. It rules and reigns over the former, which is lesser. Verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. That brings us to our third point. One man's sin brought condemnation for all. Sorry, I'm behind. One man's sin brought condemnation for all. One man's obedience brings righteousness for many. And I want to pause on this point here. Let's get a run-up to where we've been. We have compared and contrasted the person, Adam and Jesus. We've compared and contrasted what was performed, right? An act of sin, an act of obedience. We've compared and contrasted what was produced, 
condemnation and death, and justification and life. We've compared and contrasted the power, one reign overpowered by another reign. And now we find something that, frankly, I think is unsettling. We sort of compare and contrast the people. And what's unsettling about this is the asymmetry, the all and the many. All have been plunged into sin. Are all taken out? No. All are plunged in. But only many are made righteous in Christ. And and that is a kind of asymmetry. That is a dissonance. That's like ending a song on a minor note. That's like writing a poem where every couplet rhymes until the last one. It's dissonance. It's, it lacks resolution. There's asymmetry. All were plunged in. Many are justified. And the question I have for you is this. Are you among the many? Are you among the many? The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient for the sins of the whole world, but it will only be applied to some. Are you the some? The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Though it is many, even here in in this passage by Isaiah, even as Jesus talks about it, By comparison, it's few. Jesus teaches in the New Testament in Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only few find it. So I want to use the dissonance in that passage to provoke you. Are you among the many? Or even as Jesus says, even though it's many, it's comparatively few? Are you among the few who are redeemed, who are pulled out of the judgment to come because of the righteousness of Christ available through repentance and faith? Our God loves to forgive. He delights to forgive. He has already made provision for your forgiveness, and he longs to apply it to you. And my encouragement to you would be, to respond quickly today while he may be found, while his voice is heard, while he is still near. We have one last question to look at here quickly. Paul wraps up this section, sort of comparing and contrasting the law and grace. And again, Paul sort of anticipates the question of his his debater here, because any upstanding Jewish listener is instinctively going to bring this next question to him about the law. Well, what about Moses and the law? Surely by obeying the law, we kind of erase our mistakes. We take care of our guilt by being better. Just, just, let's just be better. Let's just be better. Surely that will do it. And Paul answers this question um, by saying, yeah, you know, the law does matter, but not in the way that you think. Not in the way that you think. Verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. 
But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness and bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, grace performed what the law never could. Grace performed what the law never could. The glory of God in Christ is that Jesus obeyed the law for us. And by grace, his performance of the law is reckoned to us as though we had obeyed the law ourselves from the beginning. So the conclusion of this is, Adam brought sin into the world. The second Adam, Jesus, brought righteousness and life. He is the true and greater Adam, and he reverses, a beautiful word, reverses the consequence of Adam's sin. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, then my encouragement to you today is to respond by faith and repentance now while he may be found. So I'm gonna lead us in a prayer. And if that's your, your heart to deal with your sins in Christ, to have his payment applied to you, uh, that I'm gonna offer a prayer and I would ask that you would respond quietly right where you are. And then we are gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together and visually rehearse and remind ourselves what God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I see that I am a sinner inheriting the guilt of Adam's sin, possessing a sin nature and sinning even from birth. I am a sinner in need of a savior. Father, I see what Christ has done, perfectly obeying the law, dying in my place, making payment for my sin and letting his righteousness be applied to me so that I can be justified with the Father. So Lord, I repent of sin and I receive salvation through Christ alone and by his death for my, for my sin. Let me learn to be your child, to walk in your ways and to please you with my life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.